So you might know this already from a lot of my illustrations, but my dad, he's a bit of a character, okay? My dad is a bit of a character, and sorry, dad, but he has to be in a lot of my illustrations because of that. And what's funny is I've realized over the years when I use my dad in illustrations, a lot of times people think that my dad is a pastor because of how passionate of a follower of Jesus he is. He's at, he was actually not a pastor. Like, he's been like a lay pastor maybe at, at different times. But he's not a pastor. He full-time worked as a nurse uh, for most of my life. Um, but he's, he's a bit of a character, and he's a bit, he is a passionate follower of Jesus. And so, through the years, because he's a passionate follower of Jesus, he's always let me, and sometimes even me and my friends, know his latest ministry tips and trends, okay? So, he, he's, he's out there doing ministry and he is letting us sometimes know about how he's doing that ministry and at one time he he pulled me and a friend aside and he said hey I got I got to tell you about this new kind of evangelism tool method that I'm using okay and so here I'm going to say this sometimes when I share stories about my dad they sound ludicrous they sound like they're not true and I can't verify okay I'm not always there when he does some of these things but sometimes I am and sometimes they they they, what, what he says is true. And so I can't verify his stories. I don't know if it's true. He, my dad doesn't strike me as a liar, okay? Uh, so I don't, I don't think he's lying. And my dad is like this person one-on-one. So I wouldn't be surprised if he did this. You'll understand what I'm talking about when I say. So this is the, this is the evangelism tip that he was giving me and a buddy once. He said, hey, this is what I do. I'm at work, I meet a colleague, and they're an atheist. I find out they're an atheist, because my dad's right away, you know, just checking everybody's religion. And so uh, he finds out they're atheists, and so he goes, okay, you're atheist, you don't believe in God, totally, totally. And then he goes, okay, I got a challenge for you then. And this is the challenge that he gives, he supposedly gives his atheist friends and colleagues. He says, listen, you don't believe in God, great. That means you also don't believe in the devil or Satan. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home every night for 30 days, and I want you to pray to Satan. And the prayer he tells them to pray to Satan is like the sinner's prayer, if you know that prayer, but to Satan. And then the atheist colleague, he says, the atheist colleague or friend is like, no, I'm not going to do that. And his thing is like, see, you're scared to pray to Satan, thus you believe in God, right? (laughs) That's my dad's evangelistic method. Now listen, don't do that, Flagstaff. That is not a good evangelistic method, okay? All right? I just don't think that's the right way to evangelize. Not to mention, if you guys start doing that, I don't want Flagstaff to be the next, like, making of the exorcist, okay? Like, I, don't, I just don't want that to happen. But two, before you judge my dad too hard, at least he's out there spreading the gospel, okay? <laughs> so uh, I tell that story because... We are continuing our series in Revelation. So if you didn't know, we're in a series in Revelation. If you're newer here, I would say you really should go back and listen to some, especially the first few sermons, to understand how we're approaching the series. But we're continuing our series in Revelation, and we're in chapter 12 of Revelation today. And chapter 12 gives us some vivid imagery and details about Satan, about the devil. So I thought I'd tell you my dad's fun evangelistic method where he uses uh, Satan. So, uh, so we're going to talk about Satan today. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to read chapter 12. I think I, I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's a lot. It's 17 verses. It will take us a couple minutes, but we're going to read the whole chapter together. Uh, and then the first half of the sermon, this is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about Satan and how he works in the world. That's the vast majority of our, of the sermon will be 
about Satan and how he works in the world. And then the last part of the sermon, we're going to talk about how do we as Christians conquer Satan? How do we conquer him? Because there's this idea of conquering in Revelation chapter 12. And what we're going to see is that we as Christians, when we conquer Satan, it looks pretty different than the movie The Exorcist. So let's hop into it. I'm going to read this whole chapter. And part of, I, I debated, I debated if I should read all of chapter 12 just because it's a lot to read, but the imagery kind of all works together as one, and I, I, I could have just summarized it and described it, but I just love letting God's word kind of do its thing in our minds and our hearts as it's trying to, and so it's going to be a bit of, of, of reading here. The words will be on the screen, but remember, we are to engage our imaginations with the book of Revelation. So as I'm describing these signs in heaven and these, uh, this imagery in here, just begin to imagine those things like pieces of artwork, like moving pieces of artwork, otherwise known as a cartoon, in your head and, and try to go, okay, what is God trying to speak through this imagery, okay? So I'm going to read all of chapter 12. Uh, buckle up. It will be okay. This is church after all. So we'll be all right. Chapter 12, verse 1 says this, and a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he, pushed, or he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. All right, we'll pause there. Well, we'll stop there, really. 
So let me redescribe. Let me redescribe the imagery and kind of define it for us as we go along here. So first, we get this sign in heaven, this image in heaven of a of, of a pregnant woman. There's this giant pregnant woman. Don't ever say that. Only in this context can you say that. There's this giant pregnant woman in the sky. And, and here's what we get. We get echoes of, of Mary, the mother of Jesus. We get echoes of Israel. And we even get later in chapter 12 echoes of, of Christians. And, and that's really what uh, this woman represents. She represents the whole people of God, the collective people of God. And the reason why some of these different images are being used or some of these echoes, as I call them, are being used, is be, it's because while this, this pregnant woman is, is showing us the collective people of God, God is also referencing that it, it was through Israel that he brought Jesus into the world. Okay, so that's, that's kind of the imagery there. So she's up in the sky, and then what joins her all of a sudden is this great red dragon. And he's there, and he's just waiting for her to give birth because he wants to devour her baby. And her baby is clearly Jesus, who was brought through Israel into the world, okay? So then he doesn't get a chance to devour the baby, and he never will. Uh, we see this, this epic battle between the dragon and God's angels all of a sudden. And, and we find out that, that, the, that the dragon is Satan, also called the devil, also called the serpent. He's the ancient serpent from that story in Genesis 3 where the serpent comes and tempts humanity into sinning. So what happens in the battle is Satan, and he has all these followers apparently, they all lose the battle in heaven and they're thrown down to earth. And then in the rest of the chapter, we essentially just see the dragon raging against the followers of God and makes war on the followers of God. And then we get this imagery of God using even like the earth itself to fight against the dragon that continues to make war on the woman or the collective people of God. And we also find out this this reign of the dragon, the dragon be making war, this will only happen for a set amount of time. It won't happen forever. So that's kind of the imagery of chapter 12 of Revelation. So what is this, what is this vivid imagery teach us? Probably a lot of things, but I'm just going to focus on a, on a few things. Uh, and first, I just want to focus on Satan and how he works in the world and what it teaches us about Satan and how he works in the world, okay? So first... What this passage teaches us is that there is a real, evil, spiritual being in the world, and he goes by a few names, right? He's shown as a dragon, but he's known as Satan or the devil, but he's also that ancient serpent. Here's one thing I do love about Revelation. Sometimes Revelation helps give, give us stronger theology in the rest of the Bible, right? If you're like, who was that serpent? What was that? Well, Revelation helps us know that was Satan. That was somehow that, that serpent was Satan. And so the Bible teaches us that Satan is a real spiritual being opposed to God and all that God is about. And now you might be, okay, this is basic, basic Christianity. Why are you saying this? Well, I, I'm saying this because there's been recent studies in America like the Barna Group has done over the last couple of decades where they kind of ask how many Christians believe in Satan and a huge portion of Christians don't believe in Satan at all. But right here, in the text, with this dragon imagery, 
John spells it out for us. He doesn't do that a lot in Revelation, by the way. He doesn't always go like, by the way, this means this. Like, he does it sometimes, but not a lot. Right here with the dragon imagery, he goes, by the way, that's Satan, the devil, that ancient serpent. Okay, and so, so the Bible and the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12, it teaches that Satan is real. Now, I'll be honest, the, the origin of Satan, why he's allowed to exist, why he turned on God like this, the Bible is mostly vague on, right? I wish it would give us a few more details. I wish we had a chapter called, like, Battle Against Satan 101, or like, you know, like, I wish we knew, but the Bible is a bit vague about uh, other aspects of who Satan is, but the Bible's never vague about the fact that Satan exists in this world, and he's making war against God, and even war against God's people, Okay? And so there is this evil being named Satan that has some level of power that is trying to hurt and harm God's people. Okay? I would, if you want to do a deep dive into spiritual beings in general in the Bible, the Bible Project has a great series on YouTube about spiritual beings in the Bible, Satan being one of them. And so I would say go watch that. It's totally free on YouTube. So what we're going to find out about Satan or the dragon in Revelation, chapter, in Revelation in general, but Revelation chapter 12, later in Revelation, we're going to find out that the dragon is the power behind the worldly powers of evil and destruction in the world, especially the ones seen in Rome itself. The ways that Rome is operating through destruction and evil, Revelation says the dragon is the power behind those powers. Um, maybe, maybe not quite like a puppeteer, but an influencer. They're operating in the ways of the dragon. Okay? And so, so that's what Revelation 12 teaches. Satan is real. Now, I think probably the average person that goes to our church, they probably don't have a hard time uh, believing in Satan. But I do want to say two things. If you're here and you're like, I, I'm not sure about this whole Satan thing, I, I would love to just say two things. One thing is this. For us as Christians, there is a lot about reality that we believe that's hard to believe. So if you're like, man, I'm having a hard time believing in Satan, just seems weird, just seems made up, just seems like, you know, spooky tales or whatever. Like, I would just say there is a lot of reality that we as Christians believe is true about reality that is weird and strange. And so if, like, Satan's were like, that's where I draw the line, I'd be like, I don't know, draw the line first at the resurrection. Like, determine what you believe there. Like, it is crazy that we believe that, but that's, we believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead, okay? So I would say that. Secondly, I'll say this. Sometimes, because we're Westerners, that's kind of the, the, the frame of thought that we all have in society, because we're Westerners, and the scientific method and measuring things and science in general has really influenced how we think about the world and view the world. We have a hard time believing in any unseen thing. We have a hard time believing in anything that we can't measure or use the scientific, scientific method on. But here's what I say. Over the course of human history... Across the globe, even now, it's not hard for people who are non-Westerners to believe that there are evil spiritual forces in the world throughout history and even unto now. And so I, I would say this. 
I think sometimes as Westerners, when we think through if there's even evil spiritual forces in the world, we have a bit of a chronological snobbery that we have. And this is what I mean. C.S. Lewis coins this term, chronological snobbery, where we think because we live here in 2023 that we were really much smarter than all previous peoples. And just, I mean, just let, if we just took down the internet for a day, that would prove how wrong that is, right? Like, we are, we are not, right? We can't even figure out the pyramid, so we're like, aliens, right? Like, so, like, they were just smarter than us. Like, they just knew how to do it. Like, and so there's a chronological snobbery to go, those people don't know because we're smarter. Or I would even just say a Western snobbery to say the way that we view the world with our scientific method is always right and they're always wrong. And so I would just say, hey, you have a hard time believing in evil spiritual forces in the world, I would say, hey, many people across the world believe in evil spiritual forces, and they are just as smart, if not smarter than us, okay? That's hard for us Westerners to believe. So I think the Bible, though, in Revelation 12, teaches us who those evil spiritual forces are. It's Satan, and it's his followers, which are like fallen angels or heavenly beings of some sort, as, the, as this story full of images teaches us. So, Satan is real. I think he is a real evil spiritual being in the world. And, and that's quite honestly like why I don't like my dad's evangelistic method about Satan, right? And you're not going to catch me on a Ouija board either, okay? So, so here's what we see about Satan. He is against everything that God is doing. He wanted to devour Jesus, but he can't. And now he makes war on God's people. And in the chapter, there's actually two particular ways that we see Satan working in the world. Two different kinds of ways that it spells it out for us, saying this is what Satan does. And so I want to take a little bit of time and look at each one of those two different ways that says this is how Satan works. This is what he does. Because we actually have just play, like flat out answers of like, what is, he, what is he doing in the world? How does he do it? What is he doing? You know, and, and I just like that Revelation chapter 12 spells it out for us like that. So the first way that Satan works is through deceiving. Now, before we, we talk about Satan's deceiving, here's something really important to note. And this is kind of a sidebar I should have said two minutes ago. But remember, one of the things that Revelation is trying to do is it is trying to make us discerners, discerners about our world, discerners about reality, to understand what is really going on when these different things in our world are going on around us, okay? For all of Christians in all of time in all places, it wants us to be a discerning people. And so when it kind of spells out for us the different ways that Satan works, what, that helps us to discern as Christians how Satan might be working in our lives, Like, Revelation wants to wake us up and say, discern where Satan might be working in your life, and rather than uh, let the attack kind of take you in a flood, as it's kind of described in Revelation 12, discern it. Step out of the flood. Conquer by the blood of the Lamb, okay? So, So discerning that Satan is a deceiver is something that's really important. So verse 9 tells us that Satan, he has this work of deceiving the whole world. So this is the first way we see Satan working in in Revelation chapter 12. He deceives the whole world. Now we know this. If you've grown up in the church or been around any church or at all, you know this. This is one of the first stories in the Bible. Satan, that ancient serpent, 
met with Eve and drew Eve and Adam into sinning. He, he deceived them into sinning. He deceived them by saying things like, like God was, God's withholding something good from you. That's what he's doing. He's withholding this really good fruit from you. There's something about this. God's holding back. And then they, they take the fruit and they eat it because they believe Satan's deception. And what happens is they don't receive something good that was being held back. What happens is the power of sin is unleashed into themselves and into the world. Satan deceived them. They now experience death when they would not have experienced death. This is how Satan operates. He deceives. He works through deceiving. I think in particular Satan works to twist any truth about God. Any truth about God, whether it's about who he is, about what he's done, or about what he's said. Satan is there deceiving, wanting us to not understand the truth about God. He wants to make you think that's not really who God is. That's not what he actually said. That's not what God's la- God is like. Or even more insidious, that man, if he's like that, he must be not very good. This is how Satan operates. So for instance, every time that you're like tempted to, to believe that God is not good, for instance... Satan is there somewhere behind the scenes delighted that his deceptions have gotten to you. So I, I, I want to give a little bit more feet to this. I want to give a little bit more feet to this because it's easy to talk about this like really kind of 30,000 foot view, but I, I want to get closer. Uh, because the tendency when it comes to Satan and spiritual warfare, as a lot of Christians call it, the tendency is like one, one or two extremes. Like be really weird and superstitious about it where you're like, uh, you know, like my flat tire was Satan himself. Like, ah, that was, you drove on a nail. Like that's what happened. But then the opposite is like you never think anything is a spiritual attack. You borderline don't believe in Satan or, or don't believe in him. And so how do we discern in our lives how Satan could be operating in this work of deception? Which, which Revelation says, 12 says he does. So here, here's where I think the place where we discern, where Satan is operating in this work of deception, maybe most in our lives. And I think it's through this. Through our idols. Through our idolatry. I think uh, through the things that we would rather worship instead of God. Right? And maybe you're, man, there's, not, there's no things that I would rather worship than God. But, but if you could see that your behaviors oftentimes point to the things that you can't live without, you would understand you have idols. If you could see that, there, that a lot of your behaviors are actually you propping up something on the throne instead of God and worshiping it. And I think this is one of the places where Satan operates most. Now, maybe you're in the room and you're going, I don't worship anything, Anthony. So... I win, I beat Satan, like, hey, good for you. Uh, I would argue that you do. Even if you go, I don't worship anything but God, or I don't worship anything at all, I would argue that you do. I want to read this quote from David Foster Wallace. I've read it before. I'll read it again because it's an amazing quote. And David Foster Wallace, he was a prolific writer. Uh, he, I, I don't think he was a Christian. He kind of dabbled in Christianity in different ways, but I don't think he was a Christian. I want to read this quote because here's what the quote is going to show us. Two things. That you, as a Christian, you might have an idol worship problem and not realize it. Or two, that you as a human are a worshiper of something or many things 
Whether you think so or not, whether you pur- you're purposely giving allegiance to something or not, okay? So I'm going to read this quote from David Foster Wallace. The, the words will be on the screen. Here's what it says. Because here's something else that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing, be it JC or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wicked Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some involuble set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you, will, you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to to numb you to your own fear. Worship intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. But the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. It's that they're unconscious. They are our default settings. So David Foster Wallace makes this claim that that humans are worshipers, and I agree. But I think that we were made to worship God. And often we choose to worship things other than the creator. And I I think that's sin and idolatry. That's probably where I definitely differ from David Foster Wallace. And so Satan, I think, comes in and wants to deceive us around our idols. And I think what he does is he wants to convince us that the things that we worship as idols aren't really idols. Or that our behaviors towards those things aren't isn't really worship or, or sin or wrong in any way. I think that's where Satan comes in. He comes into our aisles. He wants to go, no, that's not, God's kind of for that. Don't worry. Like, you're not wrong here. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. If you find yourself loving things in a way that you can't live without them, you probably have an idol. And I think that Satan has probably been behind the scenes deceiving you in some way. I don't know how all that works. Deceiving in some way to convince you that it's okay for you to worship that idol instead of God. We do this all the time. We do this all the time as humans. We do this all the time as Christians. We do this all the time as Americans. We worship idols without knowing it. And I think that's part of how Satan deceives us. Take, I think, what I think is is the biggest idol in our culture. I think the biggest idol in our culture is autonomy. Okay, autonomy is the the ability to self-govern. So so freedom for yourself to determine what's right and good for you. I think this is a huge idol in America. And I think how Satan deceives us with this idol is by saying things like God himself wouldn't oppose your autonomy. Or, or, or Satan might say, listen, if, if, if God or the Bible is telling you to live in a way that opposes your autonomy, 
you're just interpreting the Bible wrong. You're not reading it right, or they're wrong, or they're not right. Like, this, this is how I think Satan wor- works to deceive us around our idols, and specifically our idol of a- autonomy. Anytime that your heart has a hard time saying to some aspect over your life, Jesus is Lord, is a, is a time when an idol is creeping in and you're probably worshiping it. And I think a lot of the time Satan is behind the scenes deceiving us into thinking that idol is this really good thing and that the way you worship it is not actually worship. Satan wants to deceive you into worshiping anything that is not God, to deceive you into thinking that his word is not good, to deceive you into thinking that God's way of flourishing for you as a human is not really flourishing at all. Just look at any of the things people in our culture idolize. If you can't look at yourself, just be judgmental and look at all the things everybody around you idolizes. And you'll see really quickly you probably fall into it too. Take politics, money, sex, romance, any of those things, and look at how how much you need those things, how much you cling to those things, how much those the behaviors that result from how you cling to those things result in unloving behaviors, result in all sorts of behaviors where you have to cling to it no matter what, and you just can't let go of your precious. That's idolatry, and I think that's where Satan is working behind the scenes. Here's what's really bad, is a lot of our idols are actually good gifts from God. A lot of our idols are indeed good gifts from God, but what Satan does is he deceives us into taking that good gift of God and putting it on God's throne instead of him, and worshiping it instead of him. It's insidious how Satan works. And so the first way in Revelation 12 that we see Satan working, that says he works, is that he deceives the whole world. And so Satan has this work of deceiving, okay? Let's look at this next way. The second way that we see Satan working in Revelation chapter 12 is this, is he is an accuser. He is an accuser. Uh, Verse 10, we're told that he accuses the people of God all day and all night, I think this is something we don't talk about enough as Christians. Satan accuses the people of God all day and all night. One of the primary ways that Satan works to attack us as Christians is to accuse us. He wants to say to us and to God that we have this sinful record and we're dirty and we're unclean and we're undeserving of Jesus and we're just as bad as Satan himself is. If you want a picture in the Bible of what Satan's accusing looks like, go to the book of Job. Go to the book of Job, read the opening chapters of Job, and you see Satan the accuser working. God's like, there's Job, this this faithful man, and God delights in Job's faithfulness. And Satan goes, he's... God, of course this guy's faithful. Just, he, his life is amazing. I would be faithful too if my life was amazing. Like, he's like, I, God, if you just let me change his life situation, I will point out to you he's not really faithful. He's not really one of yours. He's actually one of mine. I just got to change his life situation. This is what Satan's accusation looks like. In the story of Job, he's accusing to God. He's accusing Job to God. This is what Satan's work looks like. But now he does it to us. He works in this world. The way he makes war on us as believers is he accuses us in much the same way that he accuses Job to God. 
all the time, Satan and his henchmen are trying to convince you that you're not really God's or God is not really your father. That's what Satan is trying to do. That's what, that's what Satan's accusations are trying to do. I know this from personal experience, but I also know this from being a pastor. And I know it from, from the word. But a large chunk of my job as a pastor over the years has, be, has been to convince God's children that they are indeed God's children. So many of us, for some reason, like get it into our head that even though we've confessed with our mouth, believed in our heart, followed Jesus with our lives, that somehow we're not really loved by God or we're not really part of his family, that's Satan's attack of accusation. He attacks that way. When we believe those things, those are Satan's accusatory barbs making their ways into our hearts and minds. Right? Not everybody hears these kinds of accusations so loudly, but a lot of us do. A lot of us do. I do. Like sometimes the, how it comes to me, it just feels like I just get, get in these, these random thoughts in my head all of a sudden. Like sometimes, it, like even recently, it's been happening during a particular worship song that I, that I hear in my car. And all of a sudden, it's just like I, these accusations become loud and frequent, and, and I just begin to go like, maybe I'm not really a Christian, Maybe I'm just not. Maybe I'm not really part of the family of God. And, and here's what's really insidious about it. I'm actually not even in those moments questioning God's existence or that Jesus is Lord or any of those kinds of things. I'm just questioning if I'm really a Christian. I'm just questioning if I'm really part of the family. That's how Satan's accusations work. You're, you're not part of the family. Let me twist this beautiful thing of a worship song to God and make, it, make you spiral into thinking that God doesn't have that sort of love for you. That's how Satan's accusations work. That's in those moments when I'm spiraling. That's, that's Satan's work of accusing, taking root. And I bet a handful of us, if not all of us, experience that in some way. So believer, look at me. The Lord loves you. You are a new creation. You are his. Do not listen to Satan. Anything that tells you otherwise is a lie from Satan in his work of accusing day and night. What's good about Revelation chapter 12 is it also teaches us that this won't last forever. For some reason, we live in this time where Satan's accusations can get to us as believers. I don't like it, but that's what Revelation chapter 12 teaches. We live in this time where his accusations, for some reason, his evil power, for some reason, can get to us and affect us. But what else Revelation chapter 12 says is that won't last forever. It won't last forever. There will be a day when Satan is defeated and we won't have to deal with his lies or his deceptions or his accusations anymore. Satan is temporary. God, the Alpha and Omega, will win. He will put away Satan forever. But that still leaves us, in the meantime, kind of asking the question, how do we fight back against Satan? How do we deal with Satan? Do we fight back? What do we do? How do we persevere 
through his deceptions and through his accusations. Verse 11 tells us how. I'm going to reread it. And they, the people of God, have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. We conquer or fight or defeat Satan, not in an actual battle, not an actual conquering, but with the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. I love that. I love how often that the lamb in Revelation teaches us about conquering and his way of conquering is the cross. That's conquering, right? A lot of us want to go like exorcist on Satan, but but what Jesus teaches us is actually the way to fight Satan, the way to conquer Satan is by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. That's how we conquer him. It's because of the cross. It is through the cross. And so we remember the cross. We remember Jesus going to the cross, dying to death for our sins to defeat the evil powers of this world. That's what his blood on the cross does as well. We usually just think about it individually. We usually just think about it with our sin, which that is totally true. But Jesus' death defeated the evil powers in this world. So church, that's how we conquer Satan. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. The blood of the Lamb gives us so much power, church. It gives us so much power to Satan's accusations, we can point to the blood of the lamb. And we can say, your accusations, they pass over me just like that angel passed over all those in Egypt who trusted in the blood of the lamb. When Satan's deceptions and accusations burden us and tire us out, we remember that It is because of the blood of the Lamb of King Jesus that we can draw near to the throne of God and remember his grace and experience his grace in our time of need. When Satan accuses us about our sin and he says something like, how could anyone ever forgive you for all you've done? We point to the blood of the Lamb and say, I don't know how anyone could forgive me for all I've done. But that Lamb's blood on the cross declares... In bold red letters that I'm forgiven and loved and cherished. It even declares that I have a new identity despite my failures in this world. I'm a new creation, says the Lord. When we're saddened by our friends who seem to be deceived and accused by Satan, we fight Satan not with a sword, but with words reminding our friends or telling them even for the first time that King Jesus came to earth and he has a place in his kingdom for them. Satan wants to hurt us and he will hurt us with his deceptions and his accusations, but we conquer him by remembering the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony, speaking the truth of Jesus for all to hear. In fact, Every time Satan's attacks are painful, you can remember Jesus' blood on the cross already conquered him. This is what upsets him. The battle has been won, and it was won on the cross. And so in his limited time, he makes war on us. So church, Satan is real. 
He will attack us through deception and accusation, but may we conquer by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the blood. God, even now, I wonder if Satan wants to attack this room of people in different ways or already is and his henchmen are. I don't know how it all works, God, but I pray in the name of Jesus that you bind those attacks and keep them far from us. And God, for some reason, we don't know why, the attacks are allowed. As we experience those attacks, God, I pray a strength through your spirit to conquer by remembering the blood of the lamb and all the ways we are called to remember your blood. I, I, I pray that the word of our testimony helps others find a way out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your son. God, if there's anybody in here right now who's been experiencing accusation in particular, God, I want to lift them up. I want to ask that as your spirit intercedes for us, that you would hear the spirit and that you would bring deliverance to that person right now or people right now. God, we love you and we need you. We're so thankful that Satan has already been conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Amen.